If you have your Bibles, please, would you turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I hope you're getting used to turning to Romans chapter 8. We're going through a series of this wonderful chapter. We'll be in this probably for the rest of 2020, so put a bookmark there. One of the greatest political leaders in 19th century England was a man named William Wilberforce. He was the leading voice that spoke of the atrocities of the slave trade and brought about the abolition of slavery in Britain. He was a prominent member of parliament and a devoted follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through his unrelenting efforts of nearly 20 years, slavery was effectively terminated in Britain by the Slave Trade Act of 1807. Wilberforce was also an outspoken testimony for Christ. He shared his faith often with those who were in prominent positions. One of his best friends was a man named William Pitt who became the Prime Minister of Great Britain. William Pitt was like many men of his day in Victoria, England. He was a member of the Church of England. He was a man of fine character, good morals, but he was utterly lost. One day, Wilberforce convinced William Pitt, his friend, to attend a church service with him. He'd been working on this for some time. There was a celebrated preacher in that time period known as Richard Cecil, a great preacher of the gospel. And so he got his friend to come. And when they were there in that church building, Wilberforce's heart was overflowing with joy because it was evident that the Spirit of God was working through Richard Cecil. Wilberforce had never heard him preach a better sermon in his life, and the gospel was clearly presented. And so his heart was filled with hope that his good friend, William Pitt, would be convicted and saved. And as they were walking out of the church that morning, the brilliant William Pitt turned to his good friend and said, You know, Wilberforce, I have not the slightest idea what that man was talking about. How often has a similar situation like this occurred in the world? Many of you have shared with me of times that you have invited people to a church service and you thought that the gospel was powerfully and clearly presented, but when you spoke to them afterwards, they didn't get anything out of it. Why is that? Why is it that intelligent people cannot make sense out of the gospel? Well, the biblical answer is found in 1 Corinthians 2.14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The Bible teaches that people in their natural state are blind and deaf to the gospel. This morning, as we continue our study of Romans 8... I want us to examine four verses that vividly describe the state of all those without Christ. 
You see, the Bible consistently divides all of humanity into two categories of people. We also categorize people, but we have a multitude of categories. We have race and gender and age and occupation and education and nationality and on and on the list goes. But from God's perspective, there are really only two classifications that really matter. The Bible uses different terminology to describe these two classes of people, the saved, the lost, the righteous, the unrighteous, the redeemed, and the unredeemed, the regenerates, and the unregenerates. And this morning we come across another such description that you may have never thought of before. But the Bible speaks of those who are after the flesh, or walk according to the flesh, or in the flesh, using those terms interchangeably in this passage, to refer to those who are lost. While those who have walk after the Spirit or have the mind of the Spirit or are in the Spirit are in contrast used to describe those who are born again believers. So this morning we're looking at verses 5 through 8. I want you to notice the first word in verse 5 is the word for, which is a linking word, a word of further explanation. Look at what comes immediately before it. In verse 4, Paul writes that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirits. And so it's as if the reader says, Paul, what do you mean by not walking after the flesh, but after the spirit? And so he says, all right, let me explain that to you. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And so in verses 5 and 6, he makes this very clear contrast between those who have the mind of the flesh or in the flesh and those who have the mind of the spirits. And then in verses 7 through 8, Paul is going to further focus on those who are after the flesh and give further explanation as to why they are the way they are. Now, as this passage continues in verses 9 through 13, Paul is going to examine what it means to live in the Spirit, which is really the focal point of what he's trying to say here. But because this passage is so rich and so full of theological truth, We're only going to look at verses 5 through 8 this morning, and we'll save the remainder of this discussion for another Sunday. Now, before we start taking this passage apart, I must make certain that you understand one important fact. I suspect that there has been more than one person here who has read through this passage, and because of the preaching and teaching that you have heard, you have misinterpreted what Paul is saying here. See, I think a lot of times when we read the word carnal or after the flesh or minding the flesh or in the flesh, I think that many people might be thinking of a certain type of Christian who is worldly, who is not committed to Christ. And we, see, we think to ourselves, I know what Paul's talking about here. He's warning about that kind of person. But I want to show you this morning that that is not what Paul is saying here. He is making a clear delineation between a believer 
and an unbeliever. He designates the unbeliever as those who are living after the flesh or have the mind of the flesh or are in the flesh. And a believer is those who are in Christ or, as it's put here, in the Spirit, who walk after the Spirit or have the mind of the Spirit's. When I was growing up in an independent fundamental Baptist church, it seemed to me, at least from my perspective in the 70s and 80s, that every evangelist, every pastor, every youth pastor was talking in our circles about the fact that there were three types of people in the world. There were believers, excuse me, there were lost people, there were carnal Christians, and there were spiritual Christians. I'm not going to have you raise your hand, but I'm sure that there are many people that that classification resonates with you because that's exactly what you heard taught and preached on a regular basis. And they was defined this way. The carnal Christian was a believer who had accepted Christ as their Savior but not as their Lord. And I can still remember a pastor drawing up a little diagram, and he had a picture of a chair there like a throne. And on the, the throne of a carnal person's life, there was a little S there that represented self. They were still on the throne. And Jesus was in that sphere, but he was off on the side. But in the spiritual Christian's life, Christ was on the throne. He was ruling in their life and the self was off, not on the throne. And so this little diagram was used to illustrate the two classifications of creatures. These preachers were well-meaning. They were seeking to bring worldly Christians as they perceived them to be to a stronger commitment to Christ. And I have fond feelings and great respect for some of these men who preached and taught these truths to me. But I want to be clear that I think it's dangerous and unbiblical. It's true that the Bible does speak of Christians responding in a fleshly manner. You read about this several times in Scripture, including in Galatians chapter 5 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where Paul describes the believers there at Corinth as being, as responding in the flesh, as being fleshly. But the Bible never presents those who respond in this way as a separate category. The Bible never says there are two types of Christians. Instead, the consistent message of the Bible from Genesis through Revelation is that there's two types of people. There's the saved and there's the lost. Now, it's absolutely true that Christians are at different levels of maturity and obedience and understanding. No one's disputing that. However, I take very strong issue with the idea that a person can receive Jesus as Savior but not Lord. The Bible says in that great salvation text, If thou shalt believe... um, How does it go, Nick? Thou shalt believe in thy... What? If I shall confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thy heart, thou shalt be saved. And when it says Lord Jesus, it's saying Jesus as Lord. 
God does not give you the option of saying, you know, I want to accept Jesus as my Savior, but that thing about him like being in control of my life, I'm not so crazy about that. I think I want to do that. You're not going to find any verse in Scripture that says you have that option. And that would indicate a heart that has not been changed, that has has no repentance, right? So that's a false dichotomy. That's a false understanding. I don't think that there are Christians that respond at times in a carnal manner and are not as committed as they should be, but it is wrong to, to classify them as some type of person as a carnal Christian. That is not their identity. It's not a separate category. Here in Romans 8, Paul is distinguishing by means of the flesh as a person who is lost. Let me show that to you from this text. This isn't me reading something in the text. In fact, you can look up in any commentary that's worth the paper it's written on and it will verify what I'm saying. Look with me at verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death. And it doesn't say that someday you're going to die if you keep going like that. No, it's saying right now you're dead. You're spiritually dead. And look with me at verse 9. But ye, Paul, after this discussion of the flesh, trying to encourage his reader, says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. What does that mean? If so, be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So you see that connection there? If you do not have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you, then you're not a believer. And if the Spirit of Christ is dwelling in you, then you are not living in the realm of the flesh. Because there's only two options here on the table. Either you are living in the realm of the flesh, that is your identity. You are lost, estranged from God, or you are living in the realm of the Spirit because He dwells within you. You see, Paul did not include this explanation of the flesh that we are looking at this morning to warn us to stop living a carnal life, to kind of straighten up and be a little more committed. No, he's trying to encourage us with the reality as born-again believers who are indwelt by the Spirit of God that we are not in the flesh. This is what we used to be. This was our former life, but we're not that anymore. That's not our identity. This is to encourage not to frighten, because this entire chapter is a chapter of assurance. I must warn you, this message may seem a little negative, because we're going to be considering this biblical description of a lost person. You see, in order to really understand the glory of our salvation, we must understand how desperately and hopelessly we were in bondage to the slavery of sin. Christians should recognize the desperate state of those who were lost. And so I want us to look at four sad realities about those who are lost in their sins. Number one, those who are lost are fleshly in their thinking. Look with me at verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. And let me remind you that Paul is not using the term flesh here to describe the human body. The Bible does not teach 
that our bodies are the reason we sin. If somehow we could be free of our bodies, then it would be perfect. That's our radical view that was condemned in the early church. It's based on pagan philosophy, not biblical truth. This is the whole theology behind asceticism that says if you punish your flesh, you know, you hardly eat anything and you hit your body with a whip and everything, that you can mortify the flesh and be a holy person because you're miserable. That's not what the Bible teaches. No, when, the, when, when Paul here is speaking of the flesh, he's referring to the sinful, unregenerate nature of fallen humanity. Now, I want you to understand that here in this passage in verses 5 through 8, Paul refers to flesh using slightly different phraseology. He talks about walking after the flesh. He talks about having the mind of the flesh. He talks about being in the flesh. Paul is using all of those terms in this passage to refer to the same thing, the realm of the flesh. There's no distinction to be made there. But I want us to consider what it says in verse 4, that they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. The Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Your thinking patterns reveal who you are, reveals what is important to you, what causes you to worry, and what is to fear. If you could analyze a person's thinking, you could write their own theology. You, you, you could understand everything about that person because we all have a constant train of thoughts that are going through our minds, and they both reveal who we are, and they also help mold who we are. The way you think about things, the way you look at things, the way you interpret things, every day of your life is molding who you are. And so like what you subject your mind to, the entertainment that you watch, the things you look at, the things that you read, those things are all coming in and are changing and molding who you are. That is why those choices are not inconsequential. You are every day becoming who you will be. And it's all based on how you think about things. Now, the word mind here has the idea of a little broader than just our intellectual cognitive ability. It's talking about our disposition, our attitude, our mindset on things. An important cross-reference for this that I invite you to turn with me to is 1 John chapter 2, please. 1 John chapter 2. Very familiar verses, verses 15 through 17. Many of you have memorized these. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. In verse 16, he talks about three essential components of worldliness. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And by the way, they have not changed in thousands of years. The world is still the world. Let's look at these very quickly. Lust of the flesh, the desires that stem from our fallen nature. Now, often when we think of lust and we think of flesh, 
We think of sexual sins, and indeed that is a manifestation of the world, according to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19, where it lists for us the works of the flesh. But John here is using lust in a much broader term than our English word, and is using the word flesh to refer to that fallen nature that we possess. So John here is speaking more broadly about selfish ambitions that dominate a person's life. We might describe this as egotism or narcissism. This is the way lost people live. They live for self. They live to promote their own agenda. And then secondly, the Bible speaks of the lust of the eyes. That is a desire for what the eyes see. We live in a commercialized society. We don't realize how commercialized it is unless we could go back in time. You realize your forefathers hundreds of years ago, they never saw a TV commercial. They never saw an advertisement in a newspaper. They never read a billboard. Can you imagine going through life and you're not being bombarded hundreds of times a day with, you must have this product. That's the way most people in the history of the world have lived. We live in a very strange, distorted anomaly. The world is constantly telling us that we need something if we're going to be happy. We have to have this product. And it's always presented so beautifully and elegantly and gracefully. It appeals to the eyes. And so because of this world that we live in, we are very tempted to put a premium on the superficial appearance of people and things. We value things by how they look. We value people by how they look, whether they're considered attractive or not. This is the mindset of the world. This is why we have such a thriving celebrity culture that every time you go to your news feed, you have 20 different stories about celebrities somewhere embedded in there. Because they're the people who really matter, who have a certain look. I always think of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress and that great scene about Vanity Fair. And everything there was to appeal to the senses, but it had no substance to it. And then John refers to worldliness as the pride of life. What does that mean? It's it's talking there, the term that's used refers to pride in your possessions. How many people in this country buy things because they're status symbols? They say to the world, I've made it. I'm successful. I'm an important person. Designer labels. The beautiful home up on the hill. The incredible automobiles, everything says, I am successful. And a person finds their identity in their things. This is who I am. I'm an important person. But notice what John says, reminds us and warns us in verse 17, And the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. All of those things are transients. The things that people pour out their life's energies for in pursuing the American dream and having the home and the car and everything that speaks of success, those things are all going to pass away. This is 
the mind of the flesh. Paul warns in Philippians 3 about minding earthly things. To mind earthly things is to live for the here and now without any thought of God or of eternity. It is to live for self. It is to live for the accumulation of nice things. It is to live for pleasure. It is to live without any thought of God or the significance or the meaning of life. How often we live this way. We live with this arrogant independence that we can do it ourselves and we really don't need God. That is the mindset of the flesh. This is the ugly truth about the human hearts. It is desperately wicked. Secondly, those who are lost, it says in verse 6 of Romans 8, please turn back with me there, those who are lost are spiritually dead. He says to be carnally minded is death. Don't let this word carnal or carnally throw you off. It's simply another translation of the word flesh or fleshly. Paul says to set your mind on the flesh, death. The word is is supplied by the translators here. The text really doesn't have it in there. It says to be fleshly minded, death, literally. He's not saying that someday you will die. That's true. But he's saying that right now you are dead. There are different types of death mentioned in Scripture. There's physical death, of course. There's spiritual death, the state in which we were all born when we are estranged from God. And there is eternal death for those who reject the gospel and are cast on Judgment Day into the lake of fire. Paul here is referring to the second of these, spiritual death. And the key passage on that is Ephesians chapter 2. I'd encourage you to turn with me there, please. Ephesians chapter 2. Look with me at verse 1. Notice the words, hath he quickened, are in italics. They're not there in the original text. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation in time past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others." This is the state of all who are lost. And so I say to you, everyone here was either once lost, once dead, spiritually dead, and now you are alive by the grace of God, or you are still dead in your sins. Everyone's either dead or alive spiritually, right now under the sound of my voice. Now, what is the essence of death? The essence of death is separation. What happens when you lose, and this is painful, when you lose a close loved one? People talk about in the world all the time. You heard people, they always say this, I, you know, so-and-so died, but they're with me all the time. I feel their presence, and I talk to them, and this is often how people 
deal with their grief. I understand that. But the reason why it's so painful is because there has been a separation between you and your loved one. They're not there anymore. It's a reality a lot of people can't really deal with. That's why it's so painful. There's a separation there. When you physically die, your spirit is separated from your body. And when you're spiritually dead, you are separated from God because the essence of death is separation. Those who are in the realm of the flesh have no relationship with God. They may say they believe in God. They may be like William Pitt and be a member of a church. They may go on occasion. They may pray to God in a crisis, but they have no relationship with God. They live in the realm of the flesh. The world is what is real to them, and the spiritual words and concepts they hear about don't seem real to them at all. Romans 3.18 says of the lost that there is no fear of God before their eyes. When they're about to do something, they don't think, I can't do that because God sees me. And this is against His law, and I must answer to Him for this. They don't think that way. If they think they can get away with it, they do it. They have no true thoughts of God because they are dead. And thirdly, would you notice with me as we turn back to Romans 8, that those who are lost are at war with God. Look with me at verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. That word enmity speaks of contention, strife, division, estrangement. This truth is taught consistently in Scripture, but it's something that people rarely consider or even believe Colossians 1 says, And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your minds by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. You see, the separation between God and man is not congenial, it's hostile. And notice once again, this begins all in the mind here in Colossians That same word, mind, is the same one used in our text in Romans 8. Now, the strange thing about this teaching is that most lost people would deny that they have any hostility towards God. In fact, they may even say that they love God. But the reality is that the God that they love, the God that they claim to trust in and believe in, does not exist. He's an invention of their own imagination. They evidence this when they say things like, the God that I believe in could never send anyone to hell. Or the God that I think of is a God who is non-judgmental. He's just a God of love. It's the only way He manifests Himself to people. It's nice that you want to think that, but that God does not exist. Now, the hostility towards God usually does not come out until you speak of the demands of God and His holy law. Look with me at verse 7. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. 
when you start speaking about what God requires of people, when you start speaking about the Ten Commandments, that's when you see a change in their disposition. That's when the hostility and the resistance comes out of lost people. And inside they're thinking, no one's going to tell me how to live my life. Or don't force your religious beliefs down my throat. But all that you did was quote God's truth. They, they are not subject to the law of God, but it's not just that they're not subject to the law of God. Notice that Paul goes a step further in verse 7. And this is a very significant text. It says, neither indeed can be. And the Greek term that's used there speaks of ability. It's not just that lost people won't bow to God's law. It's that they can't bow to God's law. This does not mean that makes them excusable and they're not responsible. No, they are responsible to obey God's law. But this verse reveals to us man's desperate state without God. This speaks of their moral inability. And so often, as Christian people, we never think of it in that way. This is why so many people in our land are riddled with addictions. I was talking once to an addiction counselor dealt with people about alcohol. And he said the most discouraging thing is that he would, they would come in here and they would deal with this, but what he discovered in delving into their personal lives is that they were just always replacing one addiction for another. They would turn from alcohol to drugs and from drugs to something else, to sexual addiction. They, they were just going from one addiction to another, right? You take away this, I'll take this over here. And they could receive all kinds of counseling, all kinds of support, and all kinds of help. But here was a change, you see. Man, apart from God's grace, is unable to respond to God's truth and to obey His holy law. Just like a barnyard pig can be tidied up and perhaps sent, if there's such a thing, to a pig obedience school. But that creature will still desire and will find a way to wallow in the mud because that's its nature. That's the nature of a pig. And that's the nature of fallen humanity. This disturbing truth leads us to the next point. Those who are lost, verse 8, cannot please God. Those who are lost, those who are in the flesh, let me add to this, are not there simply because of their behavioral patterns. It has to do with their very identity, what theologians would call their ontology. This is who they are. This is part of their identity. Those who are lost, those who are In bondage to sin, those who are in the realm of the flesh are hostile to God and unable to obey His law. And so it follows in verse 8 that they are utterly unable to please God. Now notice that this is again stated in the language of inability. Look what it says. 
so that they that are in the flesh cannot please God. He doesn't say they won't please God or they'll find it difficult to please God or they may sometimes please God. He says they cannot please God. Now maybe you find that disturbing. Why is it that they cannot please God? I mean, doesn't that seem kind of fair? Unfair? Here we have all these people and they try to do good things and God's not impressed. God's not pleased. That that kind of puts God in a negative light. Why is it that God is not pleased with lost people and their good deeds? Well, the Bible tells us in Isaiah 64, verse 6, that even their righteous deeds are regarded by God as filthy rags. Their so-called good works are all tainted with their fallen, selfish nature. Think of a person who every one of their neighbors considers to be a very kind-hearted, loving lady. She volunteers at the soup kitchen. She gives money to numerous charities. She helps out with children in her neighborhood. And in her heart, she is thinking, I am earning favor with God. I did some horrible things in my past, but these 22 years that I've been living like this are making up for that. In fact, in the depths of her heart, she thinks she's much better than her neighbors because they're not as active or involved as she is. And she feels certain that God will be glad to receive her into heaven someday because she has lived an exemplary life, at least for most of her life. But I want you to know that God is not pleased with that. Because her good deeds have been motivated with a self-righteous intent. And her good deeds essentially say, I don't need your son or his death on the cross to save me from my sins. I can do it myself, thank you very much. And so her supposed good works are actually an insult to our Savior and Lord. And they are not pleasing to God. They're revolting to God. Oh, everyone might be pleased around her and think, oh, what a, if anybody's going to go to heaven, it's going to be her. Not so, my friend. Not so. So how can a person please God? To please God, a person must be obedient to God's law. And in 1 John 3, 22, it says, we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. And in verse 4 of Romans 8, it says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us and those who are redeemed. And verse, another way is that to please God, a person must live by faith. Everyone knows Hebrews eleven six, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, it is that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. There's no other way you can please God but to live by faith. But these two things that I've just mentioned lead to the nexus points the root of it, and that is the only way you can please God is to be in Christ. Jesus 
says in John 8:29 truthfully I always do those things that please him speaking of his father who else can truthfully say that I always do those things that please my father and this invariably takes us back to verse 1 of our text there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The only way that you can be pleasing to God is if you are in Christ. If you've been wrapped in His righteous robes, if you're not seeking to obtain your own righteous standing, but you are repentantly bowing and receiving His righteousness, then you know that you have been declared not guilty, but righteous in Christ. You see, those who come to Christ by faith not only have their sins forgiven, but they've been credited with the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus. So what difference does this rather discouraging and revolting portrayal of the lost have for us? I want to mention briefly three things. Number one, We should always remember that there is a radical difference between a saved person and a lost person. This passage of Scripture, like many others, reminds us that Christians are not just religious people who go to church and try to stay out of trouble. Our identity as Christians should never be thought of as being on the same level as our political party, our preferences in music, or our favorite football team. No! No, it's much deeper, it's much different, it's part of who we are. Being a Christian is your essential identity, it's who you are in Christ. The Bible reveals that there is a radical difference between a person controlled by the flesh and a person living in the realm of the Spirit. The word radical literally means, we use it in all different ways today, but it means to the roots. At the very core of our beings, we are different individuals. We must not think of it as a minor difference, some religious preference that we have. No, the Bible says we are a completely different type of person. Our thinking is different. Our attitudes are different. Our behavior is different. And our destiny will be different. Secondly, we should recognize that we desperately need God's help to evangelize the lost. The verses that we explored this morning remind us that we can't save people with our charming personality or our slick presentation of the gospel. Because the Bible teaches that sinners are not neutral or sick concerning the gospel, they are dead. The people that we're seeking to evangelize are spiritually dead. They are alienated from God and without hope apart from the grace of God. And therefore, every conversion is a miracle where a person goes from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. It is not some brief exchange of information that a person ascends to and nods their head, okay, you're good, go. Don't get me wrong. Giving the gospel means that we must give people information. But if we looked at it from God's perspective, from a biblical 
viewpoint, we would see that it's a profound change. And we need to be aware of that. Therefore, we must pray for the Holy Spirit to use His Word to open the eyes of the blind and to make the deaf hear the gospel. Because apart from that, they will remain dead in their sins. And thirdly, we should recognize that every believer should rejoice that we are indwelt by the Spirit and at peace with God. Paul did not write this passage to discourage people or to say, you better be checking up on your salvation because I think some of you have got a bunch of flesh to live in in your life. No, he, he includes verses 5 through 8 to show what you used to be. But look at verse 9. He says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. He's writing this chapter to assure Christians that they are forever secure in Christ. He says, this is the way you used to be. You used to be in the realm of the flesh, but you're not anymore. You're in the realm of the Spirit. And look with me at verse 6. He says, to be spiritually minded is life and peace. This is the only way to live. And that word peace there is being used in contrast to what he says later later about being an enmity against God. We often think of the subjective aspect of peace, that feeling deep in our hearts that everything's all right. That is a wonderful truth, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about our objective standing with God that we are no longer at war. We have laid down our arms. We have surrendered joyfully to His sovereignty. He is now our Lord and King. We are not at war anymore. We're at peace. And therefore, because we know that standing is right and true and biblical, we can have that peace of God ruling and reigning in our hearts. This is how Paul uses this term in Romans 5.1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But how can a person enjoy the standing of being justified? Well, Paul explains that earlier in Romans chapter 3. And verse 20, he begins by saying, it's not by the deeds of the law. It's not by your good works. It's not like that lady I talked about who said, you know, I'm going to volunteer and I'm going to give money to charity and that will certainly make up for any deficit that I have accrued in life and give me a righteous standing. It's not that way. No, it's only by putting your faith in Christ who died as a propitiation He died in your place. He satisfied the wrath of God. And through that act of faith in His atoning sacrifice, you can be declared justified, not guilty, but righteous in Christ. You see, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You might be here this morning, you might be religious, you might know some terminology, you may have been raised as a believer, you know the right answers to the big questions. But my question is you, have you been changed at the very core of your being? Are are you different 
or do you have the mind of the world? Have you been saved? And what is your hope of salvation? What comes to immediately to your mind when someone challenges your standing before God? Do you say, well, I'm a pretty good person, or why would you talk to me that? Why do you think I'm a sinner? I mean, I, I think I'm better than most of my peers, or I'm trying to do my best. I mean, God knows I struggle with all these addictions and issues and hang-ups that I have from my background. And God's merciful, right? Or is the first thing that comes to your mind is, my only hope is found in Jesus, my Savior, who died in my place. My friend, if you're here this morning and you are not in Christ, then you are in the flesh and you are dead and you are doomed unless you respond in faith to the gospel. May God open your eyes to see the glory of of our Savior. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would use your word to draw sinners to the Savior and to encourage believers with the truth that we are indeed at peace with God, that we are in Christ, that we are indwelt by his Spirit, that we can have victory, that we can triumphantly overcome any obstacle we face in life and that we can enjoy that blessed assurance. I pray that you would use your word in these ways in our hearts this morning, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.